this is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. Our taping is made possible with the support of Raider, a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. The generosity of Oxner Lafayette General also makes this podcast possible. As Acadiana's largest regional health system, including two teaching hospitals and the region's only level two trauma center with more than 5,500 employees, Oxner Lafayette General strives to put patients first and make caring their top priority. In continuous efforts to reach more patients, Oxner Lafayette General provides services throughout Acadiana and facilitates telemedicine throughout the state, making healthcare more accessible for everyone. For more information, visit oxnerlg.org. I'll bet you're writing fewer checks these days. That's a very good thing. Protecting your identity is important. When you make a payment with a paper check, you're handing over all of your personal or business information, plus your bank account number. While you may find an occasional reason to write a check, when possible, choose to pay with cash, debit, or credit cards, or with your phone's mobile wallet. That will help you stay ahead of identity thieves and protect your finances. Learn more at home24bank.com. Our guest is Ken Stickney, award-winning staff writer and Metro editor of the Acadiana Advocate. Ken has worked 42 years in the newspaper business, almost all of it in the Deep South or Gulf Coast states. He has held almost every newsroom position, from reporter to editor, and worked for newspapers in Monroe, Lake Charles, and Lafayette since 1999. Ken has handled news beats from public safety to higher education, business to religion, murders and rescues, birth announcements to obituaries. In a staffing pinch once, Ken also spent two weeks handling the recipes for a Mid-South Daily Newspaper Society pages, which I can't wait to hear about. <laughs> he and Blue Rolfus are currently researching a book on the three sainthood causes being pursued in the Catholic Diocese of Lafayette. He's also completed a draft of a biography on a Louisiana oil man. In 2015, Ken began a health journey that led to prostate cancer surgery in May of this year, 2022, and he recently wrote an, a column about that challenge and the lessons it taught him. It was that personal article that inspired me to invite Ken Stickney to be on Discover Lafayette. While I've always admired his writing skills and empathetic ability to pick up on the heart of a story, it was the sharing of his own story at that point that I realized I saw what I most wanted to attain and maintain in my own life. The simple gratitude and knowing that we've all been given just what we need. What we have is just enough and the journey is worth every step. Life's journey can be a source of joy and happiness and I'm really honored to welcome Ken Stickney to the show to talk about his life. Ken, thank you. It's, it's wonderful to be here. Yeah. I've just admired your writing for so long. I think we met when you were at the Advertiser. Uh, probably so. A while I joined back. the Advertiser in 2013. Yeah. And, uh, yes. and you had moved away for a while. Um, for a while, I uh, um, I had a friend in uh, that I had known from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. He owned the newspaper, uh, among many newspapers he owned, in uh, Port Arthur, Texas. And after they had the Hurricane Harvey there, um, he uh, he needed an editor. He called me up, and I, for years I'd kept in contact with him and helped him find people because I've in some of the positions I've held, I've did a lot a lot of hiring, and. Uh, and he said, uh, if you can find me somebody or if you would come. Oh, yeah. that's kind of intriguing. <laughs> well, it was to me because at the time, you know, in the last 10 years, 15 years in the news business, uh, mm -hmm. have, it, it's been perilous, you know. And and I was at an age and uh, where if I had lost a job, and um, then uh, I would have been in tough luck for mm -hmm. retirement and so I, I um, and, and we didn't know exactly what was happening with the paper at the time so uh, I went to Port Arthur for two years mm -hmm. and as editor and uh, and it was terrific 
I'm glad you came back. Then. Oh, I'm, it's wonderful to be back. So tell us about how you ended up in the South. You grew up up north, right? I grew up in, on the north side of Boston. Mm-hmm. I, I was born at Chelsea Navy Hospital. Uh, where my dad was in the service. And... Uh, and and we grew up on the North Shore, which is a, a beautiful area. It's at Salem, uh, Peabody, Danvers area, and and when we say Salem, I, I do mean the witches, and uh, uh, and it was a lovely area to grow up of. Because I hated it, I couldn't wait to get out of really? there. You know, I really well, you know, I was just a, a young teenage mm-hmm. kid. And, nobody and, wants and to think nobody staying yeah. home. You I, know, I, you know and, and and oddly enough, years later, um, my wife and I were looking for places to locate and uh, and I picked up uh, one of those places rated books that they I, I don't know if they still have them or not but they used to give a really good description of like 300 communities and and rank them and and my hometown was in the top 10 in the country of places to live so uh, it was Peabody Massachusetts which is uh, and you say um, Peabody uh, we say Peabody, Peabody. and uh, everybody else <laughs> in the world says Peabody and uh, uh, but uh, um, but you know you you don't know. You never know. You don't know until you, when you're 95 you know, or so. That might right. be the place to retire. Uh, so. Well, I think I've found a place to retire. I tell you what, we bought our niches at the cemetery at uh, St. Joseph's Catholic Church. You know, just you know, to uh, when my dad died, he had taken care of all his arrangements, and I said, I need to do that. I don't yeah. need to leave this with the kids. So, Carrie and I bought two niches, mm-hmm. um, and uh, my brother calls a niche, you know, which is is for uh, an urn. He calls that a condo, but oh, uh, like small, but just yeah, it's just big enough. Put, yeah, you put the ashes mm-hmm. in, you know. Right. And so uh, uh, this is it, you know. I'm, uh, we uh, uh, Milton will be our final, uh-huh. our final resting place, and 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 Lafayette is the town that will, you know, that we we will stay. Well, we're lucky and, to have you here. Right. You studied at Spring Hill, and you have quite a few degrees. I mean, you really have. You, you're accomplished in I, what you've I, studied. I actually, to, uh, to be, you know, candid with you, I was a terrible high school student, and I maybe the smartest thing I ever did was when I got out of high school. Um, I said uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go directly to college. I, I knew my my uh, my my uh, study habits were bad. I was indifferent, and and uh, uh, and so I worked uh, in a plastics factory overnight shift. I was a um, uh, a laborer in Peabody in, uh, in uh, Salem. Okay, and uh, uh, and and I. Um, uh, and I just read, you know, I read, uh, I, I have, and it's been a lifelong habit, I will read in um, in spurts and on topics. And at that mm-hmm. time, I, I was reading uh, Southern authors and, and, uh, and, and, you know, great authors. And so I read a lot of, of uh, uh, Southern authors, and I said, gee, it would be nice to to go down south. Uh, my brother, uh, a little bit ahead of me, in, in, um, uh, had gone back to school, and, and uh, uh, I got laid off one day. It was during the oil crunch in the 70s, and, and uh, Chuck came home from semester at uh, University of Massachusetts, and he said, uh, it was the day after Christmas, and about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and he said, let's go to New Orleans. Wow. <laughs> and I said, uh, Sure. For, for New yeah. Year's, like just let's go. <laughs> just let's go, and I said okay, you know, and um, uh, at four o'clock in the afternoon, yeah. and so um, that's a um, long drive. We rode through the night, and uh, we got uh, uh, to Knoxville, Tennessee, and we got a hotel room, and and we woke up, and in uh, about three o'clock in the morning, he said, uh, you know, we're this close to Mexico. <laughs> 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 proving we didn't have a globe in the car anywhere. And, uh, and, and you didn't need, uh, you know, a passport or anything like that. No, you just, you, yep, we, go anywhere you want. What we need, you know, you can only get in about, at the time, you could only go about 10 miles in. Mm-hmm. But, you, you know, could still we, get in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We wanted to cross that, you know, I, I, I knew we'd cross uh, Mississippi and I mm-hmm. was kind of, you know, fond of, of Faulkner. And and, uh, oh. and so I, you know, there were there were moments where we'd pull over on the side of the road and you could see nothing but stars out, you know, off uh, uh, Highway 
59, I think it was, and 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 uh, uh, and we'd just stand there for 10 minutes and watch the stars, and you could hear the cicadas in the mm-hmm. background, and 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 I could picture myself in a in a uh, Faulkner novel. Uh, when I went to uh, um, you know uh, we uh, a later layoff um, uh, at the oil uh, at the plastics factory, which is plastics is very dependent on oil. Um, right. uh, I um, I started up at the community college and and uh, well, how old were you then? I was uh, I guess I I I went I did a crazy thing. I was uh, uh, 21 and I said you know I got to catch up. So um, I I signed up for 22 hours and there was nobody to stop me. <laughs> Tell me anything different, and so you know, for the next twelve months, I, I didn't have a drink or a date, and uh, but you had mass quite a few hours. But that. I, yeah. I did twenty-two and twenty hours, yeah. and I had a couple loose hours here and there, and and uh, and and I, I had uh, taken a, a philosophy course almost by accident, and I had a fellow who had gone through the Jesuits, and he was uh, um, uh, Kierkegaard. He had written a book on Kierkegaard, and 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 uh, and I really admired him, and I said, you know, I'd kind of like the study of that, and uh, and I had remembered my trip through the South, and I said, but I'd like to go south, and he said. You should go to a Jesuit school, mm-hmm. and there are two in the South. There is uh, Loyola, and having been through New Orleans on my previous trip, I said, "I'll never, I'll never stay in school if I go to New Orleans." Right. So the other one was Spring Hill in Mobile, and that's. I didn't realize that was a Jesuit school. Yes, yes. I mean, some of my friends here we were talking about right. Frank Randall, Chris Rader, uh-huh. several people that are well known in Lafayette have been to it was, Spring Hill. It's, it was Spring Hill was founded uh, as a Catholic college, yeah. but not a Jesuit. The Jesuit in 1830. Uh-huh. Jesuits came in 1847, uh-huh. I believe. And so they came, you know, very early in the in the process. So, so. that was a liberal arts education. Or? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I, I majored in philosophy and mm-hmm. and uh, and loved it. You know, I uh, I loved being there. It was. It, I, I guess from being an indifferent student when I was younger, uh-huh. um, I said well, I want to do something traditional. I want to do something yeah. scholarly and and. Um, uh, you know, I was not the smartest guy in the class, but I could stay up later than anybody mm-hmm. and work, work and and I could uh, and that's what I did. Yeah. Did you want to be a writer, or were you just trying to expand your horizon? You, you know, know what you were I, thinking. I wanted to. Um, uh, I wanted to write, and I had thought about newspapers. Remember, this is the um, the. Uh, uh, the Woodward and Bernstein I was thinking years. Watergate. It was very intriguing to be a journalist. It, it was, and I read an article. I'd got hadn't been at Spring Hill a few days, and one of the Jesuits gave me an article. Uh, uh, may have been from the Atlantic, and uh, it was written by Ben Bagnikian, who was uh, a former Washington Post uh, uh, managing editor, and uh, it was called Woodstein U. And so it was <laughs> what he was trying to to talk about was what was the best preparation for a journalist mm-hmm. and uh, and so he talked to managing editors around the country and surveyed them and and, and there was a split uh, about half of them said you got to get a journalism degree and and learn those those hard skills that uh, you know did mm-hmm. enable you to write a news story and uh, the other half said no nah, you got to get a liberal arts degree and and uh, uh, so that you have some background something mm-hmm. deeper than just technique and so so I, I went to uh, Spring Hill, got the uh, philosophy degree, and went immediately to Alabama, where I um, I got a, a, a fellowship uh, in uh, in the communication school, and wow. and and, uh, and and went ahead and and got prepared from both sides. You know? Did you get a job at that point in? Like at a newspaper or no no I did uh, um, uh, another uh, I guess I went three semesters and left without a thesis but I had a thesis topic fell on me <laughs> and uh, you know and and, mm-hmm. and it wound up you know being what I came back and did the thesis on and it was a World War II correspondent from Columbus Mississippi his son had uh, been in the room next to mine and. Uh, uh, and uh, Mr. Henry had also gone, John Henry, and he had also gone to uh, Spring Hill, um, class of, of 1936. And uh, and uh, so he, uh, um, 
and and was a philosophy major. And so we, uh, you know, I went ahead and he he died when I was in the first semester of graduate school. They were from Columbus, which if you've been up uh, around Tuscaloosa, it's an hour, you know, west uh, to Columbus. And uh, his uh, his older son, uh, with whom I was friends, uh, uh, John said, uh, well, my, you know, there's a bunch of stuff up in the attic of my father's. We need to clean it out. And so uh, I went to their house. They they lived in a big old house called, uh, they had named it the Fourth Estate. And uh, uh, they raised their kids there. And and, uh, uh, and and I went to their house, and I, we went up in the attic, and we found a, a duffel bag, which was about the size of this dining room oh table goodness, here. Yeah. And, um, and Mr. Henry, come to find out, had been a war correspondent in World War II. And he had... Uh, uh, c- covered uh, the war from five continents. I couldn't find anybody else who did that. But, oh my gosh! Uh, what a treasure! Um, it was uh, it was amazing. It was uh, uh, you know I don't know how many pieces there are exactly, but uh, um, but it na- it's now in the possession of the uh, World War II Museum in okay. New Orleans, yeah. and uh, uh, and it uh, Mr. Henry was the only surviving son of a doctor in in uh, Columbus, and uh, and they used to write to each other every day. Mr. Henry and his father would run back and forth from, from wherever he was assigned, and and uh, Mr. Mr. Henry. Uh, uh, Got the assignment to cover, you know, World War II. He was a sports writer for uh, the um, uh, for the International News Service, the old Hearst News uh, Service that later, you know, uh, joined with UP to become UPI. And uh, he was covering a football game at the uh, polo grounds uh, when the war broke out, and he was assigned immediately to go cover the departments of Army and Navy uh, in Washington. So he covered the war for you know a, a brief while from uh, from Washington. Uh, he went with the first U.S. troops that went to um, uh, England, and so he covered the war briefly from uh, from uh, uh, Europe. Uh, he was assigned to uh, uh, Casablanca, the uh, the Battle of Casablanca, where the U.S. fought the Vichy French, and uh, uh, and he covered that with Walter Cronkite, and uh, uh, and and so he was in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, later, he was uh, transferred over to. Um, um, the uh, coast of Brazil, where there had been a lot of U-boat action, so he got to cover the war from uh, uh, from South America for about mm-hmm. uh, four to six months. And his last assignment, he was assigned to the Pacific. Um, a fellow who had uh, been one of the stalwart uh, reporters in the Pacific was injured at Guadalcanal, and uh, and he went to replace um, Dick Tregaskis. Uh, uh, Dick. Tregastis, by the way, wrote a book called Guadalcanal Diary, which was very well received. And um, in the 80s, there was a rock group called Guadalcanal Diary. That he inspired. Um, uh, I I guess so, you know. But uh, at any rate, uh, uh, you know, he spent the last couple of years covering Mm -hmm. the uh, the war against the Japanese. And uh, um, and he was... uh, uh, all the way to, uh, um, he was with the first group that uh, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, he covered the um, uh, Tibbets and the crew of the Enola Gay after they had dropped a bomb. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, he obviously inspired you. Very much. And I want to remind you, I, I love hearing about this. You are a reporter, and you're so used to telling other people's stories. Right. And you know, right. we're here for you, Ken. But this is who you are. Yeah. You're here to share your your life career. But um, you're such an endearing person, though. I mean, this these people have inspired you. The ones you've been talking about, the influences you've had, and you're used to telling everyone else's story. It was in in, in these stories. Were, you still are. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I I really enjoy it. That's one of the things I write. I like best about what I do. You know, I bet you, you certainly don't do it for the you know for the money. Yeah. And, well, uh, I know it's a good career, but yeah, right. You're not going to have the fourth estate, right? Working, you know, for the paper. But, but this is what I like about Discover Lafayette. I get to hear other people's stories right. and. Um, you have just you've done this now for 42 years you've been covering other people right and and you know it's it's funny how one thing leads to another um um you know that chapter that i wrote on uh, mr henry's uh, uh coverage of 
of uh, uh, the Enola Gay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, I wound up sending it as part of a uh, application for a grant to go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki and got the grant. You did? Yes. So in, in uh, I guess it would have been 1984, oh I spent gosh. 30 days in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and uh, uh, which was, you know, a fascinating time to to um, to be there because there were still so many people, you know. Remember, it's 1984; it only been, you know, not 40 years yet since the end of the war. So it was rebuilt. Though, so it, they, oh they yeah, yeah. It was, people were it, still ill. I know there were still the effects. Of- it was uh, that was one of the real um, tragedies is that um, you know is that there's no controlling that sort of a. Uh, a bomb and its effects. So there were a lot of civilians that mm-hmm. that were injured, uh, um, and I I um, got to meet some of them. Got to talk to doctors uh, who treated those with uh, uh, the atom, what they called you know radiation sickness. They called it atom bomb sickness, and um, and and, uh, and and got to. Um, spend some time with those people and, and talk with them. And, and uh, uh, it was one of those awkward things because uh, we, you know, we interviewed a, a fellow who's very famous in Japan. Uh, he had been a boy about 16 years old delivering the mail when the bomb went off and, oh. and his entire back was burned. And, uh, uh, and they took for a long time to put them together again. And, and, uh, uh, and so we did um, what other previous groups had done, and he took his shirt off to show us mm-hmm. his injuries, and it was, it was startling. Yeah. You know? We talked to a, a, a father of a, of, a, of a woman who was 40 years old who uh, was in utero when, when the bomb fell, and, and she had uh, encephalitis. And, oh. and uh, um, you know, she had, uh, um, uh, there was, you know, the effect of her on her mental, you know, uh, ability was profound. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, and and she was kind of a somebody who was uh, uh, kind of, I guess, uh, typical, not typical, but but she she used her as kind of like a lesson of of what war brings. You know, I remember my great aunt Elise. Her husband was, you know, he fought in World War. Mm-hmm. Too, and she was always a bitter opponent of the Japanese. Right. And I'm curious, you being an American mm-hmm. going to Japan, how did they receive you? You know, as as it one was, of our representatives. Yeah, I was one of four taking the tour, and and uh, people were for the most part very nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, but when you're in that sort of situation. Yeah. You've got to be honest too, you know. And and I had read, you know, the, you know, they a lot of of the Japanese people would would say, well, how could you do this cruel mm-hmm. thing? Well, well, the Japanese had an atom bomb prog- program too, you know. And most ours, of us don't know anything yeah, about any of that. Ours ours finished up, you know, before First. they could get theirs yeah. going. So and and believe me, if they could have dropped it, they would have. Um, and then. Uh, um, uh, you know, the Japanese, I had read so many of Mr. Henry's notebooks uh, from uh, various places in, in the Pacific that when they had, uh, the Marines had gone in or the Army had gone in and captured strongholds. And the Japanese were inhumane. They were incredibly inhumane. Uh, they would generally go into a, a town or a, or a village in some of these places. Like I, I, I read, you know, an interview that Mr. Henry did with people in Guam, and and uh, and what they would do is they would uh, uh, call for the mayor or the village priest, and and uh, they would uh, uh, decapitate him in front of the villagers oh uh, to show who was in, charge. in charge. Yeah. Oh my God. And so they were a very inhumane uh, opponent, and uh, uh, so it was uh, one of those things you can't just sit there and make nice. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to, you've got to, right. you know, you've got to be straight with them. Right. It's one, you know, it's one of those things. I think people don't, I don't think they, they take this into consideration. Uh, I get, for a long time, I was interested in, in civil rights literature and what happened in the civil rights era. And, uh, and, and I, there was a anniversary of the Freedom Riders and there was a very famous picture right? and uh, it ran on AP. I don't recall if AP took the photo, but it was uh, at uh, one of the bus stations 
and there was a, a you know big old raw boned guy uh, in you know part of a mob that was beating a, a black guy who was who was uh, you know just you know four or five guys just beating them with clubs and things, and um, and it dawned on me you know I said you do the math and this guy's a grandfather somewhere. What do you say, you know, to your grandson if he says, "Isn't that you? <laughs> Isn't that you thirty years ago?" Yeah. And, and so, what were you thinking? Yeah, what were you thinking? And it's one of those things I ask that you know a lot of the you know children of the Japanese soldiers. You know what? You know, did they ever as talk you, to you about what they did? You know? Yeah, they did. They ever talk about it? And, and maybe and they didn't. They didn't. Because I know, know they really didn't. My deceased father-in-law was a fighter pilot right. in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. In World War II, and my husband John said he just never spoke about. Right. They didn't speak yeah. about it. No, nobody they did. But they were told, yeah. and they. Yeah. They came home hopefully. Yeah, my father-in-law so. was on a. He was. Uh, he went to Tulane, and he was an engineering student, and which gave him enough savvy that they uh, uh, that they assigned him to detonate bombs uh, that had or disable bombs oh, that fell and didn't go off. <laughs> he had to on be an ships. engineer. Huh? He was the, he was the guy who took them apart. <laughs> and, made it. Made it. Yeah. And so uh, uh, he would never he would never, never speak talk about anymore. it. No, he yeah. didn't talk about it at all. You know. Well, I want to get into your career. Okay. I, I love this background because I think it explains your interest in history and and putting the pieces together. Right. Before we transition to that, I'd like to pause and reflect back on an interview we did with Blue Rolfus back in 2017. We stopped Ken at every show and just kind of reflect back on a, okay. a past interview. And Blue Rolfus was one of the first guests on Discover Lafayette when I was still taping at uh, Kadiana Open Channel. And in this little clip, she speaks of the influence her beloved mother had on her and her life journey. And I know you two are partnering in something, mm-hmm. so I thought it'd be a good fit to listen back to this. You can hear Blue Rolfe's interview along with over 260 others at discoverlafayette.net. Or even better, please subscribe to Discover Lafayette wherever you get your podcast, and you can check out our archive there. And now the moment. Your mother, just thinking back, we were talking about yeah. for Fox McKithen, mm-hmm. and I'm sure she was friends with John McKithen. She, she was. be up at the Capitol. She was a presence. She was. She, um, she was always lobbying for causes mm-hmm. that were important to her. And, People listened, though. She she was my hero. We we lost her three years ago in April, but I still feel her presence with me every day saying, you got this, you can do this. Oh, that's you know? wonderful. And uh, when I was trying to make the decision about whether to take Bishop Desitel's offer to go to the Diocese of Lafayette and leave a job that I loved to do another job that I knew I would also love. And I I found myself thinking back to, you know, what would mom do? What what would her advice Mm -hmm. be? And um, I could just hear her say, go for it. Because those were always the words. Exactly, exactly. And she said, there's no shame in failing at something, it's not as a failure. Long, it's it's a growth because yeah. you always grow with every with every failure. As yeah. long as you get back up, right? And it's try how you again. handle life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. What a great example. Yeah. You were named after her. Your name? Yes, is that's Vivian. my real name. Is Vivian, Vivian Francis? Yes, but with I, you know, I came from a big family, and oh. so um, early on, my brother and my sisters figured out that I had. I, Welcome back to Discover Lafayette with Ken Stickney, staff writer and Metro editor at the Acadiana Advocate. So let's talk about your writing career, 42 years. So where did you get your first job? Well, my first job, uh, it was before I started the thesis. I was doing research for the thesis, but after I'd finished coursework at Alabama. And I was fortunate enough to... uh, uh, to get a job in Macomb, Mississippi, which uh, uh, the Enterprise Journal is the newspaper down there. It was a, it was a newspaper of about 11,000 circulation. The town was about 10, so mm-hmm. it was the news. Yeah, it went into the, all you know the surrounding areas, and and so uh, uh, they were they were good editors and. Uh, uh, and I was raw, you know. I mean, I'd just taken some courses, and you know, uh, and so I was raw as far as re- a reporter goes. But I got to cover every type of thing you would 
you know, and you, you could co- I covered what I was uh, talking about the births, the deaths, yeah, the city crime, hall, yeah, you know, religion, yeah. <laughs> city, city hall. hall, the rural uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, beat, uh, the uh, uh, road projects, um, uh, murders, um, ter- terrible, you know, uh, um, you know, violence in some instances. Uh, it was a um, uh, it was a town. It was a nice nice little town to live in, but it had a civil it had a, a civil rights history. And, and uh, there had been, uh, um, I think, more than in Freedom Summer of 1964, there had been more than 30 um, churches burned. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and, and so it was, uh, um, it was a, you know, people had memories of it. Uh, the staff, a couple of people on staff who had gone through all that, and, and it was a tough place to, to be a reporter in that sort of a situation, you know. It, they they, uh, they told me they could not leave the newspaper except in pairs. They could only oh. leave in pairs because... Uh, mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of instances, uh, you know, when you work for a town in a town and for a newspaper readership of that size, they expect um, you to mm-hmm. toe the <laughs> the town line. And I'm thinking you know. that was before, right before CNN and oh, yeah. all these cable yeah. channels. There was no internet, so really the local news yeah. was 1980. critical yes. to people yes. understanding what was going on in their community. Right. Right. It Such was a different day, cool. huh? It really was, you know. I mean, it, one of the things I liked best about it, it was McDonald's behind us. So you could walk out. The, the, <laughs> the, it was an afternoon paper. You could pull the paper off the press at about 5 minutes or 12, walk into McDonald's uh, to get a, a burger, and everybody else in, the, in McDonald's was reading the paper. They really? Were, <laughs> they'd gotten it before, almost before I had, uh-huh. you know. And, uh, and that, that was a big deal. So where did you go? Like, how did you end up in Louisiana? Well, I, I, I worked uh, my second job. I went to back to Tuscaloosa, and I was a reporter there at the Tuscaloosa News, and uh, and and um, I did my thesis, completed my thesis. It took about three years to write the thesis in in Tuscaloosa, and and returned to uh, uh, to Mississippi to uh, uh, Tupelo. So you so know, never had an inkling to go back to Peabody. No, never. Not by uh, that time. You know, uh, I, when I, uh, when my wife and I, when I was in in Tuscaloosa, my wife and I married, and uh, she was from the South, and mm-hmm. uh, and I used to look at, you know, at that time, Gannett was a growing chain, and I'd yeah. look at ads they had about all their newspapers, eighty some odd newspapers, and uh, and and my wife said, well, I can live anywhere for three years, and so uh, sometimes she'd go to the mailbox, and there'd be. You know, uh, um, uh, Chamber of Commerce information waiting there from like Butte, Montana, or something, and and then finally she said, "I meant anywhere in the South," uh-huh. and so uh, um, and so that that were that pretty much you know mm-hmm. I became you know I and I and I liked the South. It was a different South then. I'm sure you remember. It was a much different South mm-hmm. then. And uh, uh, although I was you know uh, an out of towner, no matter where I went, and and uh, uh, people were generally. Pretty pretty kind, you know, people were, you know, they were different people. Now, if you go through the South, it's really more of a homogenous with the United, with the rest of the country. People have, have become, uh, they've lost the distinctiveness, the, the regional mm-hmm. distinctiveness that they used to have because they all watch the same TV shows. And, and I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, <clears throat> I read yeah. about that in Christy Malloy's book, the one Is that right? she and Pearson Cross just wrote. Oh, okay, okay. And it was interesting to look at the shift since the 80s, right. you know, as we've lost more and more local journalism, mm-hmm. per se, mm-hmm. it's become more national. And right. so, yeah, the South has really, especially our area, we've lost kind of that, not everything, of course, we're still Acadiana, but it's more homogenous. Yeah, it really is. And it's hard, to, it's hard to think, well, just a couple of three decades ago, it was so different. Right. As you traveled the country, people would have different perspectives. Right, right. You know. And uh, yeah. you know, I, I so you am, covered that. You covered local. Yeah, stuff. I mean, yeah, I yeah. local stuff, and it mattered. Mm-hmm. You know, local stuff really mattered. It did. You know, like I said, you walked into McDonald's, everybody was reading the city hall story. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. were all they knew what was going on in the community, and they cared. And because they weren't, you know, a lot of the small towns I worked in, they were not as um, uh, they were. 
they were um, settled on those towns. That was where they were from. That was mm -hmm. where they were going to be. And and uh, we weren't as quite as mobile a society at that point. And and people, uh, um, you know, they cared about where mm -hmm. they lived. It wasn't like I'm going to be here for a couple of years and go somewhere right. else. You know, I was so the guy. Were, I was the guy who did that. Right. Every three years, as <laughs> yes, your wife said. Yes. So were you with Gannett with these these you newspapers? You know, and not at that time. I wound up. Uh, uh, you know, the the paper in Tupelo was owned by a family, and it was very interesting family and and uh, i stayed That's there for about three years. Place, huh? yeah yeah another small place and oh. and uh, a different place than than tuscaloosa was and and uh, but it was a it was a very progressive community and and uh, and it was an interesting place to work um from there um you know this is just how stuff happens but i was uh uh i was uh, the desk guy i used to design the newspaper you did? and i didn't know that much about it so i had to get books on you know and, and learn how to design the newspaper, you which mean, like I did. The way it's laid out, like yeah, all the, how it's laid out, the, the weight of the headlines, uh -huh. the columns, with uh, wow. uh, how big to run the photos. That and had to you know do a style book. And and uh, uh, one of my old uh, professors at Alabama asked me to come over to Tuscaloosa and and. Um, uh, and and do a class, a oh. three-hour class with his design students to tell them what I did. And because I I told them I said you know I'm I'm gonna give it to you warts and all because you know I'm not that good. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you what it was like, and uh, and while I was in the electioneer's class, uh, the Journal and Constitution called the dean of the school and said, "Do you have anybody that would be able to work on our bureau out in Cobb County?" And he said. I have just the guy. He's, <laughs> He's in the like other in room. The classroom 101. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, <laughs> that was how I wound up. I went to Atlanta and worked That's at the Journal Constitution. Huh? It is. It really is. It's now, a, was that a big newspaper? The Journal and Constitution? Yes. Um, is that one of the big ones in Atlanta? Oh, yeah, yeah. The Journal and Constitution had a circulation, Sunday circulation of about 600,000 <gasps> at the time. Oh, my gosh. So uh, I went from a circulation of wow. about 40 to 600,000. And you know <laughs> so, how to set out the columns and the pictures. So well, there and, you go. And had, having been a reporter before, mm -hmm. I wound up running the bureau. Uh -huh. That's exciting. I did some of what the layout. What year was that? It was uh, 86 that wow. I went, and, and I stayed about a year and a half uh -huh. in the Journal and Constitution. And then the New York Times Company bought a paper just outside of... of uh, um, of, of Atlanta, and uh, they looked for people that would come out there mm -hmm. and kind of take on the Journal and Constitution. And things were was, booming then. I mean, they were really growing yeah, outside yeah. of Atlanta. So we were going to have yeah. the Journal and Constitution versus the New York Times uh -huh. Company, which bought the, pa the paper in, in Gwinnett, and and, uh, and I went there. Uh -huh. And, uh, uh, you know, we had... They'd had a turnover in in uh, leadership at the at the paper in Atlanta, and so I was the even though I'd only been there a year and a half, I was the old guard as far as new yeah. guys went. So I you know I, I was kind of stuck, and so I went in, in uh, mm -hmm. to uh, uh, to uh, uh, Gwinnett, which is about. 20 miles outside of, of Atlanta. I'm curious, uh, you know, and this is a question for today, too. I'm just curious for people that aren't in the news business. When you'd move from these papers, small town to big big city to this and that, do the, do the editors in charge, like the owners of the paper or whatever, do they kind of tell you what you're going to cover? Do they tell you what's important? Are you given that kind of, you know, manifesto of this is who we are as the Atlantic Constitution versus the Tupelo, right? Whatever. Do they tell reporters kind of who who they are and in what they should do? In some instances, you know, there's there was always a misconception about how newspapers operated, and and I always uh, wondered like how you know what to cover. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you're going to cover those things: city hall, uh, county government, uh, state government, if you're near the capital. Um, uh, football, yeah, <laughs> We're especially in, the in South, Louisiana, you know? yeah. and so uh, I covered a lot of football, and uh, especially on little papers because mm -hmm. you know there was nobody else. You had to double up and all that sort but of. Do they tell you like we're conservative or we're liberal or we're just uh, out to cover, cover the that. news? You know, do you they tell you? You kind of cover that in mm -hmm. in uh, in the in the course of uh, of the interview process. They want to fill you that. out about who we have here. Yeah, yeah. Who are we? What do mm -hmm. we do? What is our history? You know, what are they going to do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Loose? And so, 
you know, uh, uh, it, it worked to my advantage to not take some jobs because I knew they would be, you know, if I had, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be the type of job where I would, you know, I would be happy, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, uh, you know, you want a certain amount of independence and, and, uh, you know, especially as you move up and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I generally had a, a good deal of independence, you know, I mean. So today you write a lot of pieces that are people-oriented from the heart, I mm-hmm. feel. Even though they're news, you're not that hardcore kind of break in the, you know, somebody just robbed the bank or there's right. graft going on or whatever we would mm-hmm. have locally. You tend to cover community-oriented um, pieces about people that are really making a difference in our community is what I see. Is that something you've um, grown into, or was that always maybe your focus? It was always my focus to to try to get some feel of what the impact was locally, mm-hmm. even if it was a business. Even if I was on, and because I've been a business beat, I've been city hall, all of that. What, how did those decisions affect people, mm-hmm. and and you know, how did it affect their neighborhoods? How did it affect uh, you know who they were? Instead and, of just the government. Right. Pass this ordinance. When a government they pass passes, this, and then this is what happened to the right. people that live there. Yeah. yeah, this is this is you know I I remember doing a story you know my second job in Tuscaloosa and and there were um, you know there's a, a lot of zoning issues and zoning issues were a big deal yeah. and and you know you don't know that when you're kid I was a kid you know I mean you don't realize mm-hmm. until you know you actually go out and talk to people and. Uh, uh, we had, you know, a lot of projects that were allowed, and a lot of things that uh, um, that that I would go to City Hall, I would listen to the meeting, I would listen to what was said, and I would, you know, the best part of the meeting was when people came in, you oh, know, yeah. the public came in and got to say something, and invariably I'd catch those people and say. You mind if I come out? Will uh-huh. you talk to me if I come out? And, and so, uh, you know, I remember talking to people uh, on a zoning issue, and and uh, and I talked to this uh, family. They were uh, um, they were up around our age now, <laughs> and uh, so to me, they were old people. But they uh, knew probably what was going to affect their property and well, their quality of life. You, you know, know, I remember talking to someone in their backyard, and they said, "You know, when we moved here, mm-hmm. this was a little brook," and we said, "Isn't that pretty?" Well, standing there that day, they had it was about ten feet wide, and a, a deep kind of ravine that had come through because of you know zoning decisions that had allowed water you know to come down, pave you know uh, pavement that shouldn't have been there, and oh. all of a sudden you had you know real impacts on mm-hmm. people. Their properties flooded. Their uh, uh, I remember going to a guy you know visiting a guy's house and and. Uh, uh, and standing by his fence, and the uh, erosion uh, on his property had moved about ten feet inside the, the oh fence line, and his fence was down in the ditch. And and this is, you know, this there were real impacts, you know. This oh. is this really, you know, and these and things will get people more upset than just about do. anything. They do. My whole neighborhood fought mm-hmm. a car wash that was proposed right. at the entry as you drove into our neighborhood. We, I mean. It was bad. Yeah, yeah. But we stood together. But I mean, when you talk about people getting upset, mm-hmm. it's about things that affect their homes. I, I remember uh, sitting in, in City Hall in a, in a city council meeting in Tuscaloosa, and, and a fellow uh, um, old man, I would have said then, he's my age now. <laughs> younger than us, <laughs> he was, um, You know, he would come and complain about, you know, every time it rained, his house would flood. And this was because he was at the bottom of the hill and they had allowed so much so much development and paid mm-hmm. you know development up above them that the water would just rush off and go down to his house and one day I was uh, at the meeting and he wasn't there and and I asked uh, the lady the, from the planning office I said where is he and she said he was trying to jack his house up and he got he had a heart attack and died. Oh. So there were real impacts that you know had, oh, gosh, had uh, you know terrible ramifications yeah. for for you know people mm-hmm. and their families and everything else. I loved doing local local news, and you and still I, do. It's yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I really loved it. Any big stories you can think about in your career that stand out in your mind? You know, besides the fellow that was fighting city hall and the flooding. I mean, 
Are there some that really stayed with when, you? Uh, I'll tell you one that uh, I always bring it up in, in 1982. Uh, uh, um, Bear Bryant retired in Tuscaloosa. And uh, about uh, six weeks, five weeks later, um, uh, he had a heart attack. And uh, I was at my desk that night, and the publisher called and said, I, I think Bear's had a heart attack. And so I called. I had covered, you know, police and fire for a long time. I called Station Six out by uh, the VA hospital, and because they would have responded, they would would have responded to him. He was visiting a friend who lived out there, and and I drove out and, and talked to the paramedic and said, "How was it? Is he okay?" And and the guy's face was like gray. He said, "He's not going to make it." He said, it's, he was, uh, uh, we gave him an enormous amount of pain medicine, and he said, it didn't, it didn't, you know, he, he's in bad shape. Did he pass away? He's, uh, the next morning, you oh, know, and, yeah. and uh, so I covered his funeral as well. I, I, I didn't cover the funeral, I covered his burial. I was at the gravesite in, uh, in, oh. um, uh, in Birmingham, what where an he icon, was buried. Huh? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I was sitting there, I had a picture, I wish I had held on to it, Joe Namath walking in front of me, and it looked like we were talking. Mm. <laughs> You could have and, kept it for and people your, would yeah. say, "What was Joe saying to you?" And I said, "Well, he, hey, he wanted to know how to meet girls." You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but uh, uh, yeah, that was a story that had wide impact. You yeah, know, I really did. At the right um, place, not at the yeah. not at the right time, because you don't want to see that kind when, of tragedy. When I was but, at uh, when I was yeah. in uh, um, Hiroshima, um, you know, I we, we really, really didn't want the the official story there. I really wanted to talk to people and how it affected them and. I went out about, you know, it gets very light there in the morning. In the morning of the 39th anniversary of the dropping of the bomb, I went out to the Peace Park, and uh, I had an interpreter with me, and and uh, uh, and we uh, saw a lady who was, uh, I'm going to say she was probably 80 or so, and... and uh, um, and and we just stopped to talk to her, me and the interpreter, and and to kind of get her story. And and uh, and she talked about that morning, and she said that uh, her daughter had gone to work in the city, and she lived on the outskirts of the city, and um, uh, and the bomb came at I think it was eight, maybe eight fifteen in the morning, and. Um, uh, in the epicenter, about four thousand degrees centigrade. So it was. Oh, it was. Uh, uh, it burned everything. If you've ever yeah. seen a picture of Hiroshima yeah. after the bomb, there's nothing there mm. except what was a, a equivalent of a chamber of commerce building. So I asked the lady, and she said, "Well, you know, uh, everything was gone." She said, "All the street signs were gone. All the neighborhoods were gone. Everything was flattened, and you really had no idea where you were. You could look out and see a mountain range, or you could look." But you really, you know, you were lost. And she went to look for her daughter, and she spent the entire day. And you can imagine this, you know, if, if such a thing happened to you. And she was being exposed to all the radiation, oh, yeah, yeah. too. Yeah. But she spent the whole day looking for her daughter and then finally yeah. went home. And, and she was so distraught. And, um, and her daughter um, uh, was... Uh, you know, as nightfall was coming, her daughter was, she recognized her daughter coming to her. She couldn't recognize her daughter because her daughter was so badly burned. But the the daughter was um, uh, just in rags, you know. I mean, her clothes yeah. were mostly gone from the flames, and, and she was not she going survived. to make it. No, she, didn't she was not going to make it. Oh, and God. and so, you know, when you have an interview like that, this is a real long pause before you say something, you know, because you just, there's not a lot to say. And I said, well, this, you know, I mean, it's a stupid thing to say, but I said, well, this must have been the most awful moment of your life. And um, she was a sweet lady. She was, you know, about 80. And she said, no, not at all. She said, uh, you know, I was there when my daughter was born. And in her hour of greatest need, she said, I could hold on to her until she died. And so I was there for, for her death. And, and, and I could, you know, I could, you know, do that last act of love for my daughter. And it was one of those statements that just takes the 
hair out of you. You know, it just is stunning. And, and uh, you know, to see a perspective, you know, that, that somebody would have in that sort of moment. Right. And she didn't hold any kind of, you know, I mean, she didn't, you know, she held, held no bitterness, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that I could discern, you know. and yeah. But it's just one of those things. Again, it was a big story, but it was a small piece of that story, and this is, is, is what, you know, what happened to people. It's like one moment in time, but a, mm-hmm. an important part right. of your journey to have yeah. these opportunities, Ken. Yeah, yeah. You've been lucky. Yeah, I've actually, you know, been fortunate, you know. Mm-hmm. I got to, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, you if you can call it fortunate. <laughs> well, I mean, the business but is you tough. Could, but you could you know. learn a lot yeah. of things, you mm-hmm. know, and that's one of the things that's most fascinating. You can learn a ton of things, you know, because, you know, when you cover a beat, you know, the first thing I would do is I'd get everything out of the library I could on that topic and read it, you mm-hmm. know, and it could take months, you know, but... But, but then would, you knew what to ask. But then I knew I had some some framework for what yeah. to ask, you know, and, the, and a lot of people, if they try to move from an area too soon, they don't, they don't know, they never learn the history of the place. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I was in Tuscaloosa, there were a lot of, uh, um, you know, there was still a lot of uh, uh, memories of, of the civil rights era. And we used to see a lot of the people, you know, who were big names would come through town because, uh, um, you know, that was, uh, Tuscaloosa was a hot town for a long time. I mean, yeah. Wallace was, you know, I mean, right. stand in the schoolhouse door and all that. And uh, and so I got to meet a lot of those people, and some of them were terrific. You know, I met Ralph Abernathy mm. and did an interview with him, and it was great. It was a, He was a really nice man, type of man you want, you know, to be your pastor. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Joseph Cotton Reader and, and uh you know, people that uh, had had a, 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 a role in the civil rights era and had been very close to it. Uh, um, Joseph Lowry, who I, I wasn't a fan of, but uh, but a lot of those people who were involved in, mm-hmm. in uh, uh, you know, and some of them were very nice people, you know. Is it hard to keep your, um, you know, your unbiased approach if you're interviewing somebody that, you did, like you said, you don't always probably care for all the people you have to interview? But your job as a reporter is to report, right? It is to report, and, yeah. and you've got to, you know, nobody's an angel. No. You know? <laughs> you know? But, you know, and when so, you look at some news stations, it's all yeah. about what they think. And right. I've always thought, for me, I just want to be told what happened. Yeah. And I'll figure out what I'm going to think, you Come know. On. I want to know what that person thought. That's right. You know, and then you can figure out, do I agree yeah. with that or not? But not have somebody go, well, this is what you should think about what they right. think. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so it was, uh, um, uh, and, and so to hear their recollections of what mm-hmm. went on, and, and sometimes people would have regrets, and sometimes they wouldn't. I, I covered a lot of Klan rallies. Oh I covered gosh. a lot of, wow. you know, uh, um, you know, J, met J.B. Stoner and, you know, some of the real hate-filled people of that era. And uh, uh, and so it was, um, um, you know, it was a, you learn a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you read this compliment you're reading, if you talk to them, you learn something that you can go back and read more about. And, and the most important thing, you know, when I, for instance, when I moved to Louisiana, the first thing I did was I, I took a course in Louisiana history out at the uh, at the university, and and uh, and, and to kind of get some basis, some you know, some kind of base understanding of where I was, and and you know what the history was about, and and what a rich uh, history, huh? Yeah, it really is. You Edwards. know? Oh yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it's uh, I I wound up. Uh, you know, I did. I completed a history degree. I wrote a bi- um, a biography of a of a unionist newspaper editor from Catahoula Parish, which uh, um, to me was fascinating. It really was. You know, there was, uh, um, I went through the archives at LSU and there were about 900 pieces there. I met family members and they had things that I could read. And mm-hmm. and so I, I really, uh, I got to know you know, uh, you know, person I, well, I went to a you know, reunions on on different sides of the family. <laughs> I'm right in the middle. I had a picture of me right in the middle of the Tolliver family in in Catahoula Parish, and they said, "Come on in, get in the photo." And I said, "Oh no!" And, you know, and they put me right in the middle, and there I am in the middle of a photo, and I'm sure everybody's saying, "Who was that yeah. guy?" <laughs> you know, but he's uh, that Yankee from Peabody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, but it was <laughs> it was fascinating, and uh-huh. and you really get an idea of what you know what is 
was mm -hmm. like to live out there at that time, you know. It's, what do you think, like comparing the young Ken, you know, that was a new reporter 42 mm -hmm. years ago to the Ken today, like would you give advice to the young Ken or would the young Ken say, don't forget this? Like, you know what I'm saying? Have you changed over the years, or do you think you, how have not it's not happened? dramatically? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've always found the South to be a fascinating place. You know, I mean, I, I I'm sure people in you know Boise, Idaho, or Lincoln, Nebraska will tell you how important and interesting those people are, of those places are. And, but we know the truth. But we know the truth. <laughs> this is the most. You know, this to me was it was a, a, a very interesting interesting place to be. Louisiana, you know, I grew up in, in the middle of, you know, just north of Boston and, you know, uh, uh, in the Freedom Trail and all of that. But I think Louisiana's history is maybe more interesting because it's more varied, because it has the, you know, you're sitting here and you're looking at you know the Cajun history, mm -hmm. um, you know the German coast. You're looking at uh, uh, you know the the Southeast Asians that came in, and, you know, uh, and came into the fishing area here. You're looking at. Uh, uh, I remember I, I taught one class, a high school uh, class. It was uh, they were doing uh, college credit, and I taught Louisiana history to them, and you know to go through. Andy Jackson and, and uh, the Battle of New Orleans and, you know, uh, and, and with my group, it was fun. I could tell them, I said, you know, if you're driving through Sicily Island, you know, and I'd put mm -hmm. it on, on the map, I'd say, uh, this is where over by the, 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 the shake uh, shop, you know, you get mm -hmm. a milkshake. Um, if you look to the left, that's where the French fought the, um, the Natchez Indians in, in that epic battle that, you know, Know, that uh, kind of ended the mm -hmm. Natchez tribe or, or did you know significant damage on that and so you know it's <clears throat> I think the idea is that history only happens when many people think history only happens in big places or, or you know mm -hmm. uh, but uh, history happens everywhere right you know it really does right. and so you know uh, uh, you know uh, uh, being in Louisiana has been very special. I've been here, I guess, 23 years now, you know, between time in, in Monroe and in uh, Lake Charles, Lake Charles yeah. and, and, uh, and then here, yeah. you know. Well, I'd like you to touch on um, your personal story, if we may, as we wind down. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned in the opening about a recent article you had shared with us, you know, right. your story about your own health journey. Mm -hmm. And I've got to think as a reporter, as I said, you're so used to covering others and talking about what you've learned. Right. But you shared with us what you learned about yourself in that story. And if you whatever you feel comfortable talking about, but it was a poignant article about life. It, it, it really and truly was an interesting time. And in, in uh, 2015, uh, my, my first grandchild was born. You know, I have four children, and, and, uh, and they all live in Louisiana. Some, you know, uh, some moved out and come back, but they all live in Louisiana. They all went to college in Louisiana. They're all graduates of Neville High School <laughs> up oh. in, uh, in Monroe. And uh, I have three teachers and an engineer. And uh, my first grandchild was born, and at about that time, I found out that I, I was at risk for uh, prostate cancer. And uh, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, you know, and because, and you know, your first, uh, your first uh, you know, uh, reaction is always the same, why, why, why me? Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, um, but the second, you know, on, 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 on reflection, you know, the second, you know, reaction ought to be, well, why not me? You know, I've, I've had a wonderful marriage and I've got, you know, four stellar <laughs> children and, uh, uh, I, I haven't, um, you know, I haven't carried that many crosses in my life. And so, you know, if you're committed to your faith, you know, you wouldn't wish it on somebody else, you know. And so this has been, you know, for you know for several years, you know, the numbers stayed, so it didn't look, you know, sometimes with prostate cancer, it'll never happen. You'll be okay. A lot of times, they, t you know, people will tell you, well, something else will get you first, you know. And so, uh, um, you know, it travels that slowly. But 
uh, a few months back, uh, my numbers took a sudden jump up. And I've been with the same urologist and, and surgeon since I got here. And, uh, and he said, well, now, now we got to start thinking about this, you know. And, and um, it was a... Um, um, it was a decision. He said, you know, you could probably wait six months before you have to make this decision. But I've to had... To do something? Like to have surgery? To have surgery. Oh. And so... That's uh, a pretty dramatic yeah, step. Yeah. It, it, it was, you yeah. know. And, and so, uh, you know, we had to make some decisions. And, and uh, you know, my life has been one, you know, people I've met, people in the business and outside the business, guys are terrible at this. You know, they're really terrible at it. And uh, they drag their feet and they don't want to do it. And they, you know, nobody wants to line up for a colonoscopy and, and all of that. And I got to talking, you know, just recently with um, a fellow from uh, Louisiana Public um, TV. And, uh, and he had had uh, the surgery a few months before me. And, uh, and he said the same thing. People don't, you know, they don't, you know, they don't do, you know, the, the, you know the preventative stuff. Yeah. The they don't get that early warning. Now women are a lot better at it than guys because or unless you've lost a close family member, right. you know, then you get right. that scared right. feeling. But if you've not had to worry about it, yeah, it's just something you put off. Yeah, I mean, I I talked to a radiologist. You know, when I decided to get surgery, and the radiologist said, "Well, you know, you do it like thirty-five times, and you know, and you know, and it's non-invasive, and it's not, you know, and and." Uh, and he said, I've had guys that said, hey, you know, I got to go on a hunting trip. Uh, can I do it in four? <laughs> four? Four times. And I said, are you, are you being serious about your illness? Because, you know, the, the one thing you don't want to do, when I was uh, about 40 years old, my wife was home with four kids and been out of the workforce for about 10 years. And the one thing I didn't want to do, I, you know, is die on her you know get sick or um because you know we were not one income family and it would just be devastating to my family if i if i had you know gotten ill so i started running and you know being more conscious about mm -hmm. my health and ran my first marathon when i was 40 and and all that stuff because you know i didn't want to be out covering a a, a meeting some one some night and have Kill my over. Yeah, yeah, yeah i have my forehead hit my mashed potatoes yeah. and so uh you know so uh, uh, I had a doctor at that time, a, a GP, and he said, "You got to take this. You know, you, you know, you got to every five years you need yeah. to have a colonoscopy. Every, you know, every year you have to have this test. Every year." And I said, "You know what? I got insurance. You know, if if some a lot of people have bad luck and and mm -hmm. they get terrible health news and there's nothing they could do about it and all you can do is pray for them. But shame on me if I just." wasn't doing the preventative stuff and didn't go to my checkups and, and left my family in dire straits, you know? I mean, then then that's on me, you know, to some degree. So You went ahead and had the surgery. Oh, yeah. I had all, I mean, for 25 years I had colonoscopies, and they told me that I was, you know, probably at risk for some, you know, for certain things. And then I, you know, when they the, the surgery came up, well, it looks like a thing to do. I said, well, I want to be there when my grandkids are older, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I want to I want to step on my granddaughter's toes when I'm dancing with her at her wedding, you know. I want to do that stuff and so you know i i uh yeah i had the surgery and and uh and it wasn't easy and it wasn't uh it wasn't it wasn't as bad as i thought it would be it's a tougher recovery a little you know but i think everybody's situation is different it hadn't but been that long though like a month or so may 17th i had yeah, surgery so it's been yeah, a month. yeah well and, here you are i mean yeah here i am great yeah a couple of weeks later i was uh i was back i could sit up so i was at my desk and doing work at home and then the next week i got out to some things and uh -huh. and that's uh that's what i'm trying to do now is, is get out more and and uh, uh and be aware of my situation mm -hmm. so yeah the guy from public tv and i we may go ahead and try to do some things to you mentioned to that. warn people you know i want just to encourage you you can yeah. do a show or like a 
Maybe yeah. Podcast I mean, he was thinking along. The, he was thinking along those along yeah. those lines, and I think that'll be a good idea. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not, nobody special, but I mean, that's probably better because I could be anybody, right. you know. And, and remember, Katie Couric did something after her husband yeah. died, yeah. and I think it was a similar type of right. cancer, but it was just to raise awareness of right the importance of being proactive, right, and not just waiting to get bad news. I mean, if you got insurance, yeah, you know. They're recommending you do this. This is the sort of thing that, mm-hmm. you know, um, I had wonderful people I've worked with over the years, but I had guys that just wouldn't go to the doctor, you know, and so they had I lost a lot of friends that did yeah. some, you know, that if they had gone to the doctor and, right. you know, that the story would have been different, you know. Well, Ken Stickney, I, I want to thank you for sharing your story and your journey Um the Acadian Advocate has been so good to me with this podcast. You guys promote what I do, and I just enjoy reading The Advocate. We still get the paper paper every day. Right. People tell me, well, it's an old person thing. But I, I like the articles and my puzzles. Right. And I like that paper in my hand, you know. Right. right. But I'm grateful to what you all do to keep us informed locally. Yeah. So. It's it's a it's a joy to be in this community. It's yeah, a, you know it's a joy to be in Louisiana, and and uh, it's a joy to have um, you here. Yeah, I'm it's glad great, you came back. Great to be here. It's great to be back. Yeah. Well, Ken Stickney, thank you so much, and please check out Ken Stickney's writings. When I, I just googled you, I just want to kind of close with this. So many of your articles come up, and they're just life affirming, community oriented. Interesting stories. So you've written on everything, every topic that I can see, and it's just right. a plethora of, of good reading. Well, so thank easy you to so find. much. Yeah. Now, I want to thank our listeners. Thank you so much for your support and listening to our podcast. We couldn't do this without our sponsors, who I must thank. Oxner Lafayette General, Home Bank, and of course, Raider, and in particular, Jason Sikora, who mixes our tape and makes it sound professional. Thank you all for making Discover Lafayette possible. This is Jan Swift.